0: The Toady Tree, from Household Words, Volume 11, Number 270. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Thomas van Eersel. Charles Dickens' 200th Anniversary Collection, Volume 4, The Toady Tree, from Household Words, Volume 11, number 270, by Charles Dickens The Toadie Tree It is not a new remark that any real and true change for the public benefit must derive its vitality from the practice of consistent people. Whatever may be accepted as the meaning of the adage, charity begins at home, which for the most part has very little meaning that I could ever discover, it is pretty clear that reform begins at home. If I had the lungs of Hercules and the eloquence of Cicero and devoted them at any number of monster meetings to a cause which I deserted in my daily life whensoever the opportunity of desertion was presented to me, say on average fifty times a day, I had far better keep my lungs and my eloquence to myself, and at all times and seasons leave that cause alone. The humble opinion of the present age is that no privileged class should have an inheritance in the administration of the public affairs, and that a system which fails to enlist in the service of the country the greatest fitness and merit that the country produces must have in it something inherently wrong. It might be supposed, the year one having been for some time in the calendar of the past, that this is on the whole a moderate and reasonable opinion, not very far in advance of the period, or of any period, and involving no particularly unchristian revenge for a great national breakdown. Yet, to the governing class in the main, the sentiment is altogether so novel and extraordinary that we may observe it to be received as an incomprehensible and incredible thing. I have been seriously asking myself, whose fault is this? I have come to the conclusion that it is the fault of the overcultivation of the great toady tree, the tree of many branches, which grows to an immense height in England and which overshadows all the land. My name is Cobbs, why do I, Cobbs, love to sit like a patriarch in the shade of my toady tree? What have I to do with it? What comfort do I derive from it? What fruit or self respect does it yield to me? What beauty is there in it? To lure me to a public dinner, why must I have a lord in the chair? To gain me to a subscription list, why do I need fifty barons, marquises, viscounts, dukes, and baronets at the head of it? in a larger type and longer lines than a commonalty. If I don't want to be perpetually decorated with these boughs from the toady tree, if it be my friend Dobbs and not I, Cobbs, in whose ready buttonhole such appliances are always stuck, why don't I myself quietly and good-humouredly renounce them? Why not? Because I will be always gardening, more or less, at the foot of the toady tree. Take Dobbs. Dobbs is a well-read man, an earnest man, a man of strong and sincere convictions, a man who would be deeply wounded if I told him he was not a true administrative reformer in the best sense of the word. When Dobbs talks to me about the House of Commons, and lets off upon me those little revolvers of special official intelligence which he always carries, ready loaded and capped, why does he adopt the lobby slang, with which he has as much to do as with any dialect in the heart of Africa? Why must he speak of Mr. Fismeli as Fizzy, and of lord gambaroon as gam how comes it that he is acquainted with the intentions of the cabinet six weeks beforehand often indeed so long beforehand that i shall infallibly die before there is the least sign of their having ever existed dobbs is perfectly clear in his generation that men are to be deferred to for their capacity for what they undertake for their talents and worth and for nothing else ay ay i know he is but I have seen Dobbs dive and double about that Royal Academy exhibition in pursuit of a nobleman in a marvellously small way. I have stood with Dobbs examining a picture when the Marquise has entered and I have known of the Marquise's entrance without lifting my eyes or turning my head, solely by the increased gentility in the audible tones of Dobbs' critical observations. And then, the Marquis approaching, Dobbs has talked to me as his lay figure, at and for the Marquis. Until the Marquis has said, Ha, huh, Dobbs! and Dobbs, with his face folded into creases of deference, has piloted that illustrious nobleman away to the contemplation of some pictorial subtleties of his own discovery. Now, Dobbs has been troubled and abashed in all this. Dobbs's voice, face, and manner, with a stubbornness far beyond his control, have revealed his uneasiness. Dobbs, leading the noble Marquis away, has shown me in the expression of his very shoulders that he knew I laughed at him, and that he knew he deserved it. And yet, Dobbs could not for his life resist a shadow of the toady tree, and come out into the natural air. The other day, walking down Piccadilly from Hyde Park Corner, I overtook Hobbs. Hobbs had two relations starved to death with needless hunger and cold before Sebastopol, and one killed by mistake in the hospital at Scutari. Hobbs himself had the misfortune, about fifteen years ago, to invent a very ingenious piece of mechanism highly important to dockyards, which has detained him unavailingly in the waiting rooms of public offices ever since, and which was invented last month by somebody else in France and immediately adopted there. Hobbes had been one of the public at Mr. Roebuck's committee the very day I overtook him and was burning with indignation at what he had heard. This Gordian knot of red tape, said Hobbes, must be cut. All things considered, there never was a people so abused as the English at this time, and there never was a country brought to such a pass. It will not bear thinking of, Lord Joddle. The parenthesis refer to a passing carriage, which Hobb turned and looked after with the greatest interest. The system, he continued, must be totally changed. We must have the right man in the right place, Duke of Trolleton on horseback. An only capability and not family connections placed in office, brother-in-law of the Bishop of Gourhambury. We must not put our trust in mere idols. How do you do, Lady Coldfield, little too highly painted, but fine woman for her years? And we must get rid, as a nation, of our ruinous gentility and deference to mere rank. Thank you, Lord Edward. I am quite well. Very glad, indeed, to have the honour and pleasure of seeing you. I hope Lady Edward is well. Delighted, I am sure pending the last parenthesis he stopped to shake hands with a dim old gentleman in a flaxen wig whose eye he had been exceedingly solicitous to catch and when we went on again seemed so refreshed and braced by the interview that i believe him to have been for the time actually taller this in Hobbes, whom i knew to be miserably poor whom i saw with my eyes to be prematurely grey the best part of whose life had been changed into a wretched dream from which he could never awake now who was in mourning without and in mourning within, and all through causes that any half-dozen shopkeepers taken at random from the London directory, and shot into Downing Street, out of sacks could have turned aside, this, I say, in Hobbes of all men, gave me so much to think about, that I took little or no heed of his further conversation, until I found we had come to Burlington House. A little sketch, he was saying then, by a little child and two hundred and fifty pounds already bid for it. "'Well, it's very gratifying, isn't it? "'Really, it's very gratifying. "'Won't you come in? "'Oh, do come in.' "'I excused myself, and Hobbs went in without me. "'A drop in swollen current of the general public. "'I looked into the courtyard as I went by, "'and thought I perceived a remarkably fine specimen "'of the toady tree in full growth there. "'There is my friend, Nobbs. "'A man of sufficient merit, one would suppose, to be calmly self-reliant, and to preserve that manly equilibrium which has little needs to assert itself overmuch, as to derive a sickly reflected light from anyone else. I declare in the face of day that I believe nobs to be morally and physically unable to sit at a table, and hear a man of title mentioned whom he knows, without putting in his claim to the acquaintance. I have observed Nobbs, under these circumstances, a thousand times, "'and have never found him able to hold his peace. "'I have seen him fidget and worry himself "'and try to get himself away from the toady-tree "'and say to himself as plainly as he could have said aloud, "Nobs, Nobs is not this base in you, "'and what can it possibly matter to these people present "'whether you know this man or not?' "'Yet there has been a compulsion upon him to say, "'Lord Dash Blank, Oh, yes, I know him very well, very well indeed.' I have known dash-blank. Let me see. Really, I am afraid to say how long I have known dash-blank. It must be a dozen years. A very good fellow, dash-blank. And like my friend Hobbes, he has been positively taller for some moments afterwards. I assert of Nobbs, as I have already in effect asserted of Dobbs, that if I could be brought blindfolded into a room full of company, of whom he made one, I could tell in a moment by his manner of speaking not to say by his mere breathing, whether there were a title present. The ancient Egyptians in their polvious days had not an enchanter among them who could have wrought such a magical change in Nobbs, as the incarnation of one line from a book of peerage can affect in one minute. Pobs is as bad, though in a different way. Pobs affects to despise these distinctions. He speaks of his titled acquaintances in a light and easy vein as the swells according as his humour varies he will tell you that the swells are after all the best people a man can have to do with or that he is wary of the swells and has had enough of them but note that to the best of my knowledge information and belief pobs would die of chaperon if the swells left off asking him to dinner that he would rather exchange nods in the park with a semi-idiotic dowager than fraternise with another shakespeare that he would rather have his sister, Miss Pobbs—he is greatly attached to her and is a most excellent brother— received on sufferance by the Swells, than hold her far happier place in the outer darkness of the untitled, and be loved and married by some good fellow, who could daft the world of Swells aside, and bid it pass. Yet, O Pobbs, Pobbs, if for once, only for once, you could hear the magnificent patronage of some of those duchesses of yours, casually making mention of miss pobs as a rather pretty person i say nothing of robs sobs tobs and so on to zobs whose civility has no thin coating of disguise or shame upon it who grovel on their waistcoats with a sacred joy and who turn and roll titles in their mouths as if they were exquisite sweetmeats i say nothing of mayors and such like to lay on adulation with a white washing brush and have it laid on it return is the function of such people, and verily they have their reward. I say nothing of county families, and provincial neighbourhoods, and list of stewards and lady patronesses, and electioneering and racing and flower showing and demarcations and counter-demarcations in visiting, and all the forms in which the toady tree is cultivated in, and about cathedral towns and rural districts. What I wish to remark in conclusion is not that, but this, If, at a momentous crisis in the history and progress of the country we all love, we, the bulk of the people, fairly embodying the general moderation and sense, are so mistaken by a class undoubtedly of great intelligence and public and private worth, as that either they cannot by any means comprehend our resolution to live henceforth under a government instead of a hustlement and shufflement, or, comprehending it, can think to put it away by cocking their hats in our faces, which is the official exposition of policy conceded to us on all occasions by our Chief Minister of State, the fault is our own. As the fault is our own, so is the remedy. We do not present ourselves to these personages as we really are, and we have no reason for surprise or complaint, if they take us for what we are at so much pains to appear. Let every man, therefore, apply his own acts to his own branch of the toady-tree let him begin the essential reform with himself and he need have no fear of its ending there we require no ghost to tell us that many inequalities of condition and distinction there must always be every step at present to be counted in the great social staircase will be still there though the shadow of the toady-tree were cleared away more than this The whole of the steps would be safer and stronger, for the toady tree is a tree infected with rottenness, and its droppings wear away what they fall upon. End of The Toady Tree from Household Words, Volume 11, Number 270 Recording by Thomas van Eersel.